Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Equipping You Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we are going to talk about uh, something that I said back in the summer we were going to revisit, and that's the Respect for Marriage Act that was uh, recently passed within the last week or so. And um, it is um, something that we really need really need to stay alert about and informed on because you know what we kind of i think for some of us we're like i don't even want to hear about the news and we're going to get into the news we're going to get into some of the history of things and and how we got to where we are today but even even more importantly than than that um we should care about marriage because god clearly defines the parameters between one man and one woman uh, for marriage. And and not only that, does God do that, but marriage is, is for uh, uh, marriage between one man and one woman for life under God. It's a covenant that God established. And um, it's all over the Bible. God uses this language of, of marriage in Ephesians 5, teaching how a husband is to love his wife as Christ has loved the church and a wife is to respect her husband and and so on and so forth and the the perversion of marriage in our day it's a it's a travesty uh it's a travesty for married couples it's a it's a travesty for uh all people we need to it's a travesty for children it harms them um, what's happening in our in our day? We need to we need to speak out about it as Bible believing Christians, and we need to do so not just to hammer home the truth, but we need to do it in love. We need to do what Ephesians four fifteen says and speak the truth in love. So today we're going to talk about that. We're going to start with the history behind this recent marriage act. Um, we're going to talk about uh, some about, you know, what this means and those kind of things and uh, some encouragement at the end. So gay marriage is an issue that has been ruled on by the Supreme Court and other nations around the world. And we're going to see it become more and more of an issue in the future. Uh, we first saw this particular issue in the Netherlands on April 1st, 2001, the Netherlands became the first nation to legalize same-sex marriage. Since then, massive changes have swept across the world, and most uh, Western countries now allow same-sex marriage to be legal. In 2015, the United States Supreme Court mandated that same-sex marriage be legal in all 50 states in the Obergefell versus Hodges decision. 
and that the ruling at that time was controversial because the majority of states have laws limiting marriage to one man and one woman, laws usually passed by a referendum of the citizens themselves. And many Christians consider <coughs> many Christians consider the Obergefell decision uh, a case of judicial overreach. They hope to see that overturned by a conservative po- uh, court at some point. Now, the decision by the Supreme Court has changed the landscape of America for generations. And Dr. Albert Muller says this, the very fact that the march for same-sex marriage has reached this point is telling. It reveals a fundamental confusion at the very heart of our society. The ideological support for same-sex marriage is deeply embedded in a host of ideas that are driving our society to the point of moral breakdown. The U.S. Supreme Court may well decide the future of marriage as a legal institution, but the church must hold to marriage as far more, but not less than, a legal reality. Marriage is one of God's gracious gifts to humanity, he says. It will be the church's responsibility to honor marriage uh, no matter what the court may decide. Okay, and in recent years, we've seen uh, the increase of support uh, uh, leading to the Obergefell decision and after the Obergefell decision. Uh, in 2004, only 31% of Americans favored same-sex marriage. By 2019, support had grown to more than 60% of, uh, of Americans, the Pew Research Center tells us. One in six Gen Z young adults identify as LGBTQ, according to Gallup data from 2020. Amongst Gen X who identify as LGBTQ, say they identify as bisexual, which means that 12% of all Gen Z adults identify as bisexual. And by contrast, about half of millennials, the next generation older, who identify as LGBTQ, say they are bisexual. Our young people today are under assault in high school, in college. In In an article titled, Christian Higher Ed Can't Win, David P. Gushy, who at one point held the traditional view that we're talking about today of marriage between one man and one woman in marriage, argued that evangelicals cannot win the LGBTQ debate on their Christian campuses. And he argues that evangelicals must adapt to the culture's view of sexuality. He argues that the schools will have an eruption of LGBTQ policies and they'll find themselves in the national headlines. He states that the LGBTQ students are unwilling to accept some straight guy declaring to them that they can't be both Christian and gay. They won't tolerate second class status on campus. Gushy declares that students, whether Christian or not, arrive on campus having been exposed to tolerance, inclusion, and full acceptance of LGBTQ students. Dr. Erwin Lutzer Uh, Commenting on this article says, no matter what the school's doctrinal and lifestyle commit uh, statement says, the argument is is that LGBTQ rights are a core value in our culture and schools cannot or will not withstand the pressure. The bottom line, Christian colleges and seminaries are going to have to compromise the historic Christian understanding of sexuality and gender or be hopelessly left behind. They will lose their voice. They will lose their credibility. They will be on the wrong side of history. Uh, That's what he says. 
And already we are seeing the legislation designed to deny funding to all schools that receive financial loans if they don't accept the full spectrum of LGBTQ rights. Many Christian colleges and universities throughout the United States are caving into pressure for LGBTQ students and telling students that the school is a safe place for LGBTQ students to wrestle with their sexuality. Lutzer comments that the next logical step is for the schools to hire sympathetic staff who want to stand up for the rights of the same sex and the transgender students. But this will not be enough. Once a school's administration has started down this road, there's no stopping until the full spectrum of the LGBTQ agenda is dutifully embraced. Another law, the Equality Act, H.R.5, passed the U.S. House of Representatives on May 20th, uh, 2019. It tells us where our culture is heading. Madeline Kern's comments on this law uh, stating this, the sweeping legislation would amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include sexual orientation and gender identity as protected characteristics. And under the guise of anti-discrimination protections, the bill redefines sex to include gender identity, undermines religious freedom, gives males who identify as females the right to women's space, and sets a dangerous political uh, precedent for the medicalization of gender-confused youth. She writes that in the National Review. In our cultural climate, whether we are whether you are a pastor, you're a parent, you're a university president, you're a seminary professor or a seminary president, or you are a layperson, we must arm ourselves with the truth of God's word, and we must obey all that scripture teaches. We must refuse to compromise with the culture like the church in Sardis did and embrace pagan sexuality. In fact, as I mentioned, the issue that we're talking about here came before the U.S. Uh, State House. And, and when this took place this past summer, 47 Republicans voted to join with the Democrats in supporting this redefinition of marriage, civilization's most basic institution. And when the vote for, for cloture came uh, recently, 12 Republicans voted to bring this issue to the floor. Those 12 Republicans who claim, after all, to be acting in defense of civilization and also we shall see in defense of religious liberty, the fact is is that they sold out um, to a radical redefinition of the most basic institution of civilization, and there are going to be consequences. And one of those consequences is going to be a collision with religious freedom, and we're going to talk about that today. But we need to understand what has happened. The United States Senate recently voted to approve an amended version of the Respect for Marriage Act that would codify same-sex marriage. And the most important thing it would do is repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, which had been passed overwhelmingly by the United States Congress back in 1996 when Bill Clinton was president. In the Senate, it passed by a vote of 85 to 14. And just consider how that reveals the vast moral change taking place in the United States in a generation. Let's take, let's take a journey back to 1996. And um, I, I was uh, a ninth grader uh, in high school. Bill Clinton at this time was president of the United States. 
And Bill Clinton now, of course, along with his wife, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, uh, she was also the 2016 Democratic presidential nominee. Both of the Clintons now are enthusiastic supporters of same-sex marriage. But back in 1996, it was Bill Clinton who signed the Defense of Marriage Act. He's not the only one to do a, a turnabout. And we're going to see an interesting story that involves an Illinois, Illinois senator uh, on this matter as we uh, go forward. But that said, the Defense of Marriage Act simply stated that the federal government would not recognize any same-sex marriage, even if a state or numerous states might legalize, normalize, and recognize them. But if we look back on this, the most important thing to understand is that this legislation passed 85-14 to in the U.S. Senate. It passed so overwhelmingly that it would be very difficult to find the senator who would now admit to having voted for it, but the same body, that is the same legislative body, the United States Senate now voted recently to repeal this legislation and to celebrate it as an act of moral courage and change. We're not looking at just change, a modification, a new compass setting on this issue. We are looking at a 100-degree U-turn, an absolute reversal. And all of this has taken place since 1996. There were 12 Republicans who dared to vote for this measure. These include Roy Blunt of Missouri, Richard M. Burr, and Thomas Tillis, both senators in North Carolina, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, Susan Collins of Maine, Joni Ernst of Iowa, Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Dan Sullivan also of Alaska, Rob Portman of Ohio, Mitt Romney of Utah, Todd Young of Indiana, every single one of these Republicans voted to redefine marriage. And they may try to say they were doing something else, but that's what they were doing. They were redefining marriage. And now it's interesting to consider the comments by Senator Loomis uh, herself, again, a Republican from Wyoming. She gave very interesting comments during the debate. And in her comments, she went on to make a distinction. She said this, there is a biblical definition of marriage and there is what she called a secular definition of marriage. And she went on to say the biblical definition of marriage is marriage as the union of a man and a woman. But she said that marriage now has two meanings, the biblical and the secular. And she argued that it was perfectly consistent. It makes perfect sense in her mind to uh, redefine marriage and secular law while continuing, she said, to affirm what biblical marriage is in a biblical sense. And here's the problem. Once you describe a, a distinction between biblical marriage and secular marriage, well, guess what? You're arguing that secular marriage should be seen as something distinct from biblical marriage. In fact, you have just separated, you have just unhitched, you have unhinged marriage from any any sort of objective definition in any kind of, of standard moral Western philosophy book. You have just unhitched marriage from any consistent meaning uh, of marriage that, that would go back not just to a matter of centuries, but more than a couple of millennia. You are looking at an extremely uh, radical moral act. And, and by the way, let's just stop here. Let's, let's, let's bring in a little bit more. Uh, context, we are facing a challenge in our day. It's called deconstruction. It's been around since 
about 1957. And uh, what what this guy, French philosopher uh, Jacques Derrida, wanted to do is he wanted to essentially redefine the meaning of words. And what we see here in Senator Lewis's words is actually that desire taking place, not just uh, in, a, in a university setting. It is happening in, the, in one of the most powerful institutions in the world, the U.S. Senate. Okay? And that is literally what she is saying. Let's redefine words so that they mean what they, they have never met. That's, that's what she's actually arguing for. But what we're really looking at here is, is a real test case for Christians who hold to the Bible, they they want to adhere to a biblical worldview, and they want help to think through things from a biblical worldview. That's why I I noticed that when we do talk about these issues, these are some of the most downloaded and listened to episodes on this podcast. It, it, we need to ask a question: Is there some distinction between, say, how a church? would define marriage, and how a country or a state would define marriage. Well, there is a distinction. But if that distinction becomes an absolute or a radical distinction, then you can understand exactly where that's going to go. It is headed in the direction of those who hold to a biblical understanding of marriage as having the right to defend to that understanding of marriage over and against a very aggressive secular culture that is going to say, look, if it is okay, if you say inside your church, that's what marriage is okay. If inside your homes, you want to say that's what marriage is. Just just don't tell me what you think about marriage in the public square. Keep it private. In fact, that's what we've seen in the last, especially 15 years. You know what? As a Christian, you, you can... Uh, our culture says you, as you can have your views in church. You can have your views in 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 your home and private just don't just don't bring them to bear on the public square but you know what this shows a serious lack of biblical and theological literacy because as christians we see the apostles pretty much almost right after uh acts 2 going and engaging in the public square engaging by the way uh with the gospel with the with the jews we, we see this over and over again uh, in church history. Perhaps the best example was George Whitfield, who did go out in farmland and pasture land, and, and he preached the gospel to hundreds and thousands of people. Uh, and so we have, uh, we have the, every right to go out and to share Christ in the public square, whether that's on the internet or whether that's uh, on the street, or it's at a at a at a uh, meeting place, um, not just a church. We we need to be clear about this. We need to make clear that we are going to speak, and we are not going to go quietly into that good night. We are going to stand up. We are going to be bold. We are not going to make uh, uh, apologies for being Christians who believe what the Bible says, and we are going to stand on what the Scripture says. And that it's not just, oh, well, that person can say whatever they want to in public, and, and I have to listen to it, but they're not willing to listen to me. Friends, this is not how a healthy, functioning 
Now, forget democracy. It's not how any healthy functioning society can function, period. Okay? If you think that there is, you send me an email with actual evidence and actual argumentation of a society that can function where biblical marriage is declining. It, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because, you know what, God, furthermore, we need to understand that God takes marriage very seriously. He is the one who made marriage. And by the way, just so that we're all on the same page, he's the one that made us. And so Romans 1 is very clear about this. You know what? God gives people up to their desires. He gives them up. He honors their requests. He hands them over to their, to their desires. And more and more, if we're honest, that's what we're seeing. That's where the battle lines are. It isn't just that people want to silence us. You know what? They want to, this, our culture wants to go this way. And Romans 1 is very clear. God will give them up to their desires. He will hand them over. He will honor their requests. He will give them over to their desires. Okay? And that's why we're seeing this. Well, you can talk about what you want to at your church, and you can talk about what you want in private, okay? But the tolerance police are going to come in. If you talk about it in the public square, we're going to silence you. We're going to ridicule you. We're going to belittle you because, you know what, your views about the Bible and marriage and whatever are antiquated. In fact, in my book, The Word Matters, I, I detail how, how th there's actually been efforts by some supposed Bible scholars, and I say that in air quotes, and I say that sarc sarcastically, because they are not Bible scholars. They do not come to the Bible to deal with the, what the Bible actually says. They come to tell us this kind of thing, that we need to deal with what the passages say and we need to redefine them or remove them uh, from the Bible itself. That is actually, uh, it's not only error, it's actually heresy that the church has dealt with. It's called Martianism. It's removing uh, or redefining uh, what texts mean to fit a certain theological view and persuasion. Let me ask you, don't we see that in the world today? Yes, the answer is yes. That's what the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses have done, okay? So we need to be clear that our stand, our stand is for the truth. The truth, the only way to know the truth, I've said on this show many, many times, the only way to know the truth is to know it as God has said, and God has spoken finally and completely in his reliable, trustworthy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, and binding word of God, the scriptures. And the Bible is clear. We are, we are to make disciples who make disciples. Ask Paul in the, in the scriptures, Paul, are you going to be silent for the sake of the gospel? And the answer that we get back in, in Acts is no. Paul was not silent. He went out. In fact, he went out of his way. He would go to the Jews first, and then, when rejected by the Jews, he would go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel. And he, he, he tells us in 2 Corinthians that he was beaten for the sake of the gospel. He endured great hardship and difficulty. 
Well, I could say a lot about that, but we need to move on uh, to the rest of the episode. Frank Brunei, columnist for the New York Times, made uh, this case about just keeping it private some time ago when he said that it's all right for Christians to hold a biblical understanding of these issues in their homes and their hearts, but not in public. In public, just keep it to yourself. That's what he wants for Christians. By the way, Senator Loomis also said in her comments, we do well by taking this step, by embracing or validating each other's devoutly held views. But the simple act of tolerating them, you'll notice what she says, each other's devoutly held views. So this is not, uh, we would say as Christians, we have objectively held views that are grounded in God's special revelation, uh, the word of God. What she did is just make uh, uh, our objective, authoritative view grounded in the word of God, and she made it subjective to our feelings. And that's what our culture wants to do. They want to make a biblical definition of marriage from the Bible. They want to make it subjective. It is not subjective. It never will be subjective to our opinions and to our feelings. It is binding. It is authoritative because it comes from the mouth of God himself who said it. And by the way, this is not a minority view that just one people have held uh, recently. This is what people have said for centuries about marriage. Justice Alito, in the arguments for the Obergefell decision, when he, he held up a smartphone, and this was back in 2014, 2015, he held up a smartphone, at least uh, maybe an early a version of the smartphone, and he said, whatever same-sex marriage is, it's more recent than this. Same-sex marriage is more recent than the smartphone. And remember, that, that's less than a decade ago. And now you need to remember that this bill, known as the Respect for Marriage Act, it redefines marriage, also puts in protections, legal recognition for interracial marriages. And the thing we need to notice is that uh, that was entirely window dressing. There was no legal threat to interracial marriage, whatever. It was just a political way of putting in uh, a certain form of legislation to appeal to a certain particular people group so that the Democrats could get more votes, which is what they do. And here's where the language, it gets interesting. The Democrat Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, Senator from New York, celebrated, of course, this legislative action. He went on to say, the rights of all married couples will never truly be safe without the proper protection of federal law. And that's why the Respect for Marriage Act is necessary, he says. That's what he said. In fact, on the Senate floor, that he made this even more personal. He said, passing this bill is our chance to send a message to Americans everywhere. No matter who you are, who you love, you deserve dignity and equal protection under the love, under the law. That's about as American and ideal as it comes, he says. Just listen to that. Let's look at the words if he, and see if he meant that. This was intended, Schumer says, to send a message to Americans ever. Everywhere, no matter who you are, who you love, you deserve dignity and equal treatment under the law. Senator Schumann does not really believe that. The key words here are no matter who you are, who you love, you deserve dignity and equal treatment under the law. There are uh, sexual relations. There would even be forms of marriage, polygamy, that at least in those official statements, Senator Schumer would, would have 
no, nonetheless, no reluctance to condemn. He would condemn them, but he just said, no matter who you are, who you love, you deserve dignity and equal treatment under the law. And this is very important to notice as, as you notice what people say from a world perspective language or perspective is how that language is offered, how it's said, it's repeated in the media as if it makes sense when every sane person knows what is being said. And there were those who didn't believe that this bill went even far enough in terms of, of the LGBTQ activism. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, a Democrat, said, I want to see the day when we have 100 votes in favor of no discrimination, not just for who we love, but also for any activity. This is one of the least responsible statements ever uttered in American history by a senator. No discrimination, not just for who we love, but in any activity. She was speaking in the context of same-sex marriage, but notice the language that's intended here to signal uh, inclusion, tolerance, diversity. Even those who make these claims, at least most of them, they don't believe in absolute diversity. They don't believe in absolute inclusion. They do believe in the LGBTQ revolution. And they have better understand what they're embracing is a logic that that plus sign at the end. And, and they are willing or, or not have set themselves up to be absolutely defenseless against that plus sign. And one of the misspeakers in chief, the greatest of them is the president of the United States, Joe Biden. In a statement anticipating the Senate passage of this act, he said the United States is on the brink of reaffirming a fundamental truth. Love is love, and Americans should have the right to marry the person they love. Well, let's consider what he is saying, because the Democrats in the Senate have just made very clear that even though they have adopted this amendment in order to say, we don't mean polygamy, we don't mean that it can be more than two people, but we are going to redefine marriage no longer to mean between a man and a woman. And now it can mean a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And of course, given the non-binary language, who knows all what that means? Two individuals, by the way, is the, is the way some of this language is expressed. Just two individuals, man and women, simply disappear. But the president of the United States of America has just argued that love is love. Well, Mr. President, I don't think that you actually believe it. And if you do... You ought to have the courage to tell the American people then that you believe that that there's no boundaries whatsoever, no definitions required for marriage. By the way, I'd love for you to, to tell that to your wife. Love is just love. So you can love whoever you want to. Um, wow. Again, we are seeing the radical destruction that deconstruction is having on our society it's the radical redefinition of words and what they mean so that it fits their narrative and their approach to life and it's in it's uh, it's an attempt make no mistake about it it is an attempt to shut us down to silence us so that we will not have a voice and we got to speak up we got to speak up this is not just a matter of loose language among proponents of the bill. It's a matter of the fact that if you decouple marriage from an objective reality, as I said earlier, an objective definition, if you separate it from creation and ontology, that is to say, being as God has created it, then marriage 
if it can mean any other thing, will mean many other things. And the only constraint on how many things it might even mean, the only constraint is whatever residual sanity remains in society. And keep in mind, we are talking about the law of the land, the rule of the land here. But as we've seen in just one generation, you can't count on much of that sanity at all. And you can see this in how these democratic statements, the logic behind it means there is basically a forfeiting of any claim to marriage as any kind of objective reality defined by God from the word of God. And some legislators, some court, some culture might say, this is what it means for now, and we'll see about it later. We might redefine it later. In fact, there are some who'd say that the Respect for Marriage Act didn't go far enough. And that leads to an obvious question. How far do you want to go? Brooke Midden and Al Weaver reporting for The Hill. That's a Washington-based news source. Say this, the bill as it currently stands would officially repeal the De- Defense of Marriage Act and require state recognition of same of legal same-sex and interracial marriage, but would not codify the Supreme Court's 2015 in a Burgerfell versus Hodges that legalizes same-sex unions nationwide or prevent the high court from eventually overturning the landmark decision. By the way, that's an acknowledgement of the fact that there is no power granted to the United States Congress to redefine marriage or to define marriage, that is, for all 50 states. Once again, we see that on the left, the very existence of the Constitution is a problem to their efforts, to their Ultimate goal, Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii, a Democrat, very, very liberal, told the group known as Changing America, I think this is an enormously important first step, and I don't think there are any guarantees that the Supreme Court will not overturn the precedent they set with the Obergefell. And so this is an important uh, thing to protect the rights of same-sex couples across the country. Notice what he says. A senator, a senator from Hawaii says that this is an important first step. In fact, redefining marriage in this way is an important first step. Repealing the Defense of Marriage Act is an important first step to them. Again, just understand what has been said here. We've talked about Senator Schumer. He's the Senate Majority Leader. He's a Democrat from the state of New York. Just before the Senate adopted this legislation, The the majority leader said, today we're going to pass the Respect for Marriage Act on the Senate floor. This is personal to me, he said. And today I'm wearing the tie I wore on my daughter's wedding to her wife. That is telling. That says everything. But let's look at other members of the United States Senate who was an eager advocate for what became known for the Respect for Marriage Act. That would be Senator Dick Durbin, a United States Senator, former Member of Congress from the state of Illinois, Senator Durbin took the floor recently on the debate on this bill and made very clear that he was seeking to encourage the Senate to adopt this redefinition for the federal position on marriage. He said, we need to protect uh, LGBTQ families and ensure that same-sex marriage offer the same stability and dignity that all marriages are entitled to. That is a an important statement because one of the things that we need to recognize is that the senator believes that this legislation can now offer same-sex marriage 
uh, to the same stability and dignity that all marriages, in his words, are entitled to. And we need to understand this uh, for a lot of reasons, because you can say this legislation will offer stability for same-sex marriages, and in terms of the political order, perhaps it might do that. But when the word dignity is involved here, you need to understand that any attempt by the Senate or the United States Congress or any other government uh, agency to dignify same-sex marriage, that is not politically or culturally unimportant, and it won't work. And this is a central thing to Christian understanding. You cannot ultimately dignify what is prohibited by the Word of God, which is contrary to creation. You, you can't. You can try to make it look dignified. You can make it look however you want, however rosy you want. You can declare that you have it recognized as dignity, that you have made it dignified, but that doesn't give it a true dignity. And that lack of dignity shows through in the view. In fact, it can also show something of the ambition behind what this bill wants to do. It wants to normalize the array of LGBTQ way of life, in particular same-sex sexual relationships, and say, They are such a good that we are going to say that they're just as good as a man and a woman united in holy matrimony. But you know the government may say that the senator may insist, but we're going to just say that the the mortal order resists that, and ultimately it's not going to work. And when it comes to Senator Durbin, we need to say something. Back in 1996, when the Defense of Marriage Act was being debated, Senator Durbin was then Congressman Durbin. And he was a Democrat from Illinois, the same state. And and as Congressman Durbin, he voted in 1996 for the Defense of Marriage Act. I don't think you're going to hear Senator Durbin trying to remind his own constituents of how he voted back in 1996 for a bill that he just repealed. In fact, now he comes out swinging 180 degrees different way as 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 an excited proponent of same-sex marriage and of the Senate's action undertaken in this legislation. But there's another story here, and it has to do with the collision between same-sex marriage and the LGBTQ revolution. On the one hand, a religious liberty or religious freedom on the other side, because what we're looking at is the inevitable collision. And again, we know this. The Solicitor General of the United States said that this will be a, a, an issue as far back as 2014 or 15. It's become an issue. And even as this supposedly bipartisan panel of senators said they have worked out a compromise that would protect religious liberty, we're going to see, as we have seen and we've talked about and we're going to continue to talk about, you're going to, we're, we're seeing that the erosion of religious liberty in our day. Three different Republican senators in the course of the Senate's deliberation recently brought proposed amendments that would more clearly protect religious liberty. And every single one of them was voted down. And if the Senate voted them down, then the Senate doesn't want to say what those amendments would have said. Now, there are those who say, well, the Senate had worked out a compromise. It's a bit too late to undo that compromise. Well, the compromise was wrong. And so what we have here is the Senate voting down three different amendments that would have more clearly protected religious liberty. And that tells us what the intention is behind the bill. But you'll notice that so many people who voted for this bill, including 12 Republicans, they said they did so because uh, they were assured of the adequate provisions for religious liberty. Senator James Lankford, Republican of, of Oklahoma, one of the senators who had offered an amendment 
that would have offered greater protection for religious liberty. He pointed out that courts do not judge according to legislative intent, but according to the text of a law. And he rightly and responsibly was the adult in the room and said, we are responsible for the words in this legislation, not just for what you say is your legislative intent. He's right. But there's another statement by Senator Durbin that we need to return to in the closing parts of his remarks on the Senate floor supporting this legislation and opposing additional amendments. He said this, Durbin did. Speaking of religious liberty, specifically the senator said, but we must remember this critical First Amendment right is a shield, not a sword. It cannot and must not be wielded to discriminate against individuals solely based on who they love. We have seen too much who too many who have tried to turn this crusade the wrong way. Senator Durbin, we say this to you. We owe you thanks and acknowledgement for your honesty on saying that the issue of religious liberty is not one that is to be taken all that seriously. You say it's a shield, not a sword in your own words, that it cannot and will not be wielded to discriminate against individuals solely based on who they love. Well, there you see, is an effort to say that same-sex marriage is simply going to be a fact. And as for the rest of you, regardless of all this language about religious liberty, you're going to just have to deal with the facts. If you're a cape baker, if you're a wedding photographer, if, you're, if you run a small business, if you're an, an expressive artist in these areas, and ultimately, if you are a Christian institution, a Christian college, a Christian ministry, a Christian school, or anything, you are going to face a good deal, a great deal of opposition, not only based on the larger issue of the culture redefining marriage and thus Christians and other people of orthodox religious belief being left out on the opposing side of history, but we're also having to face the fact that we've already been told that the activists behind this bill won't be satisfied. This bill was passed. Twelve Republicans and every Democrat voted for this bill. Who names makes it new, who the name of this bill makes it sound as if it supports it defends marriage, but the fact is is that it re it, it enshrines a redefined understanding of marriage into law. And according to this bill, marriage is nothing more than the legal affirmation of adult desires, rather than a bedrock for thriving civilizations built on the reality of men and women who are and oriented towards the need and the best interest of children. In fact, this bill, as I've mentioned before, it replaces the 1996 uh, Defense of Marriage Act, which was signed into law by President Clinton and which was recognized marriage as a union of a man and a woman. It shores up and it even extends the impact of a Burgerfell versus Hodges, the landmark Supreme Court decision that overturned marriage laws in dozens of states and enshrined same-sex marriage as a law of the land and it redefined the institution of marriage by judicial fiat. And this Respect for Marriage Act is the product of fear from the political left that a conservative from the Supreme Court was willing to overturn Roe versus Wade would also be a willing to overturn a Burgerfeld. Something only one justice has indicated a willingness to even consider. Now the bill has gone to the House. It's been passed. It's been passed and signed into law by President Biden. The, the passing of this bill, the signing of it into law, indicates that far too many lawmakers, including many that describe themselves as 
conservatives do not understand what biblical marriage is. The irreplaceable role marriage plays in protecting children and securing their futures or why marriage is the most important of all the pre-political positions and institutions. In fact, last-minute attempts made by Senator Mike Lee out of Utah and others to bolster religious liberty protections in the bill failed. And this means that despite assurances, we can expect more of these types of situations like those faced by Jack Phillips, Barnell Stutzman, and Lori Smith. It is impossible to protect conscious rights in a legal setting that wrongly defies, defines fundamental realities such as a woman, a man, a mother, father, wife, husband, family, and marriage. Instead, this bill will only end in additional relational arrangements, arrangements included within a legal definition of marriage. And once marriage is redefined as genderless, parenting will be reimagined as genderless too. We're already seeing this. These fantasies are made possible by technology that turned children into products. And then the consumers, whether they're biologically related or not, are called parents. And this is only going to harm children, and it's only going to harm reality, and it's only going to harm civilization. In fact, some Christians have publicly endorsed this bill, wrongly believing that the Supreme Court already settled this issue, even if sinfully, too many Americans rely on same-sex marriage to turn back now. And of course, the same uh, could be said and often was said about abortion rights. When the court is wrong, the best way forward is to correct the mistake, not extend it through another branch of government. Securing an insufficient protections along the way is no excuse for celebrating Congress making an even bigger mistake, which they did, than the court did. Now, Obergefell redefined marriage from a sexually diverse institution to a same-sex institution. At that time, the T for transgender was largely absent from marriage. However, the, the T basically runs the cultural show, and the very idea of a gender binary is seen as oppressive, outdated, and harmful. We've seen the rise of gender pronouns. Our call as Christ followers in this moment is not to re-resign ourselves to some inevitability, even for a mess of religious freedom pottage. We must continue to embrace the truth and the beauty of marriage as Scripture defines it. We must be bold. We must be willing to stand up and say, no, that is not right. That is not how a, a functioning society can continue to function where children can grow and they can flourish. We're, we're, we're seeing the, the massive results. We're seeing a, a, a conscious decision to redefine even our history, the history of America. And we are seeing the pushing the pushing of of gender pronouns on our children in our in our schools we're seeing the rise of critical race theory being taught in in the military and we're seeing the effects of it in the military not just in the military but in our in our public institutions we as christians need to stand on the word of god we need to speak up because the truth really matters and it doesn't just matter for for our homes. It doesn't just matter for our families. It matters, and it doesn't just matter in the walls of our local church. We're, as Christians, we gather together as, as God's people on the Lord's Day to hear the word preached, to participate in the sacraments and enjoy the means of grace. 
But then we go out, and we see this in the book of Acts. They go, we go out, and we scatter. We gather, we scatter. We gather together on the Lord's day to be equipped to hear the word, to pre- hear the word preached, and to worship the Lord, and to participate in the means of grace, fellowship, and so on and so forth. And then we go out we, to our jobs, to our vocation, where the Lord has placed us, and we, we make disciples who make disciples for the glory of God. But we might, you might think, well, great. You just told me a lot about what's happening out there. But you need to understand that this is not where this is ending. Advocates have been pushing for the Equality Act, a bill that would ban discrimination on the basis of gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity, and expand the definition of public accommodations. It passed the House in February 2021. It stalled in the Senate due to Republican opposition, in part because of the the tight restrictions on religious liberty exemptions. The Respect for Marriage Act's ability to garner bipartisan support was a result of religious protections added by the amendment. And now, Bonato of the GLBTQ legal advocates and defenders called the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act important, even exciting, he says, even even though the lack of congressional support for non-discrimination is bittersweet. And yet, he says, Bonito says, there's a lot to do, but in the end, I think this was a valuable thing to do. Now, I'm recording this on December 13th of 2022. On December 12th of 2022, there, Biden signed this into law. And there, at that signing, he invited a drag queen, a drag queen, to perform for children at the Respect for Marriage Act signing. Friends, make no mistake about it. We are, we are, we are in a fight for the truth. And we must stand up. All over this country, kids are being taught queer theory. They're being taught that, you know what, just be whatever you want to be. Just do what you don't like. You're a young boy. You don't want to, you don't want to be with, you don't want to marry or, or be with a, a young lady. You don't have to. You could be with, if you're a boy, you could be with a boy. And if you're a girl, you could be with a girl. And you know what? This kind of education is happening in junior high. It's happening in high school. It's even happening in elementary school. And make no mistake about it. We need to be clear about it. We need to stand up, especially in our churches. We need to help our young people understand what a man is and what a woman is as God defines it. And we need to help them to learn to think through a biblical worldview. We need to let our, our kids, if you're an aunt or an uncle, you, you need to let your, your, your nephew or niece know that it, you're a safe person to talk with about the scriptures. If you're a grandparent, you're a safe person to talk about with about these things. If, if you're a parent, you're a safe person to talk with. Parents, you need to talk with your children about these things. Some people, the real reason behind people wanting to keep it private and keep it in our churches, it's, it's because, you know what? They know that if we talk about this, that we have the better arguments. And so they don't want us to bring that argument to bear. They don't want it to bring us to bear. And for some of us, this is going to come at great cost. It's going to come at the cost of being on certain platforms and so on and so forth. 
But you know what's more important? And this is where I'll land and end this episode. What's more important is the honor of Christ. What's more important is the glory of God. What's more important is what God has said and how God defines what he does as he did in his word. Friends, this is why I wrote The Word Matters, my second book. I want to encourage you to pick it up at G3. I believe it will help you to understand how the authority of the Bible is under attack, not just in the church today, and there are so many people saying outlandish things in the church. We're going to talk about that uh, in, in 2023. But today, friend, you might be discouraged by all this news. I just want to end by saying this. Your Savior, your King, the High Priest over His people, the head of the church, He is, he is fully in charge. He is sovereign. He says that he that the gates of hell will not overcome the church. What that means is Christ is the head of the church. He's in charge. He is also the God who holds all of history in the palm of his hand. And not only that, he holds you in the palm of his hands. And as a Christian, he holds you fast. Romans 8, 31 through 39 says. And so he who holds you fast, he is the one, friend, who holds all of history in the palm of his hand. History is moving according to the plan and towards the future that God has. So we can trust him knowing that history is not just moving willy-nilly towards no end. History is moving towards the return of Christ who will come and he will return. He will right every wrong. He will, he will right every injustice because he is a God of justice. He is a God of order. See, God is consistent and he is coherent. He has fully revealed himself in the word of God. And so if you want to know God, if you want to know his ways, there's no other way than to read the Bible. Read it personally Study it, and study it with the church. Find a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church where you can hear the word preached verse by verse, line by line, and you can grow in the grace of God. We don't need our churches shut down. We don't need to be silenced. We don't need to just talk about these things in our homes and in our churches. Yes, we do. And yes, we need to be equipped. And yes, we need to be encourage one another while the while today is the day as hebrews 3 tells us but we also need to go out we need to go out and we need to tell people that there is another view and we need to refute and we need to we need to engage in the marketplace of ideas as as we see the apostles doing in the book of acts and we need to do so boldly and winsomely we need to use actual arguments and actual evidence and, and then bring the Bible to bear and show how Scripture has a better word than, than what our culture has to say. Well, friends, I know that this episode has gone on really a long time. I want to say that we're going to come back to this uh, as we end. We're going to talk more about these things in 2023 and beyond. I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of equipping and grace. Until next week, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you.
Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.